you're an amateur musician wondering how best to turn pro, what planning should you do? Also, if you're looking to tour abroad, what are the legal implications, especially in a post-Brexit Europe? We'll explore these points and more in today's episode. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. My name is Ian Cleverdon, and welcome to my audio podcast series designed to help anyone who's looking for inspiration to develop their creative skills, whether professionally or as a hobbyist. For this series, our focus is the creative arts. I'm interviewing musicians, songwriters, authors and actors, but also speaking to some in the directing and strategic management fields of this wide-ranging industry. All of my guests have been carefully chosen, as each one of them has an interesting backstory from which we can all learn. If you're new to the series, please follow it on whichever streaming platform you use and go back and have a listen to the rich archive of over 30 interviews and compilations. My guest today is singer-songwriter Sarah McQuaid. Sarah was born in Spain, raised in Chicago and has dual citizenship of both Ireland and the USA. She's settled in rural England but regularly tours the UK, Europe and the USA. She has six albums to her name and her songwriting style covers many genres. What interested me in interviewing Sarah is that not only is she a wonderfully versatile live musician and fabulous songwriter, but she turned professional at a mature age, to quote her, and also has great experience of touring abroad, something that has become increasingly difficult and bureaucratic in the post-Brexit environment. If you're not familiar with Sarah's work, I've curated a short Spotify playlist of her songs. This episode is also being released on the 4th of November 2023, right at the start of Sarah's UK tour. So do check out where she's playing at her website, sarahmcquade.com. The links to both can be found in the show notes. This series is completely independent and ad-free, so if you like what you hear and you'd like to help cover some of the production costs, please feel free to donate what you can via the link on the Corona Sound website, the link to which can be found in the show notes. I caught up with Sarah via Zoom as she just arrived back in England following a US tour and just before she starts her UK tour. Sarah McQuaid, welcome to Half Hour Mentor. Thank you so much, Ian. It's lovely to talk to you. Yes, you too. I'm going to start asking you a question that I ask all of my guests to start off with, and that is, just going back to your teenage or your childhood years, what was the first job or career that sprung to mind that you wanted to do? Oh, I can remember when I was really little, uh, announcing to my mother to her great you know horror that I wanted to breed horses and she said that would be terrible you'd be wasting all your abilities but I loved horses but yeah no I I kind of grew out of that one um fairly quickly and kind of fell backwards into becoming a journalist and then eventually finally became a full-time musician you know when, when I kind of ran out of other things to do <laughs> <laughs> when what age were you at the horses idea you know, probably about seven or something. It's just the yeah. first thing I can remember telling my mother I wanted to do when I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> but then say about journalism, what? how did that come about? Again, by accident. I fell backwards into it. I, I'd had various summer jobs doing journalism, not because it was anything I particularly wanted to do or kind of had always dreamed of, but because I was capable of doing it. I'm, I'm very good at writing quickly, you know, and well. And so then uh, when I got over to, when I moved to Ireland, 
I fell backwards again into journalism. Um, I'd written my guitar book, which is something I did want to do, and it got reviewed really well in the Irish Times. And um, I, I wrote a letter thanking the reviewer for her you know, nice things that she'd said about my guitar book. And then sometime later, I got a call from her saying that the Evening Herald in Dublin had asked her to start writing a music column for, for them. And she'd said no, because she was already writing for the Irish Times, which she'd recommended me. So I started writing a music column for the Evening Herald. And then Hot Press approached me and I started writing for them. And meanwhile, this temping job that I'd had had turned into a job editing the alumni magazine of UCD, University College Dublin, and that turned into a job editing a whole series of magazines. And none of this <laughs> was anything I'd ever kind of set out to do or intended. Um, when I, we, My first job out of university was working in a music shop, which I did for seven years, which was a great job because I was around guitars all the time. And then I was able to take time off and go on tour with the band I was playing with at the time. Um, you know, it was the kind of job where I could say to the owner of the shop, I'm going to be the away for the next, you know, five weeks on tour with, with the band. Could you get somebody to cover for me while I'm away? And, and he would say, yeah, absolutely, that's fine. And wow, that's good. That, yeah, that's yeah, rare. It was, great. it was great, yeah. <laughs> so when did the um, musical journey start then? What was oh, the first trigger? Really early, really early. I mean, I started playing piano. My mother started teaching me to play piano when I was about three years old. And then I picked up a guitar um, taught me rudiments of guitar as soon as I was able to hold it, you know, she, she had a, a, a classical guitar, which I still have. Um, and uh, so I learned to play on that. And then when I was 14, for my birthday, asked for uh, a steel string guitar and, and got my got a secondhand Yamaha FG375S, which, I, which my son has now, actually, I've given it to him. So that was really nice to be able to pass that on. But uh, I started singing quite early on with Chicago Children's Choir, which was a really, really fantastic children's choir. Very intensive rehearsal schedule. We rehearsed twice a week and uh, for, you know, I guess it was like an hour and a half or two hours at a time. And then once I became a soloist as well, I was also getting an extra rehearsal once a week, getting where I got voice training. And then we would go off on tour for kind of 10 days at a time and that would be a really intensive schedule where we were in a big, all in a big tour bus and we'd have like school workshops and maybe a local TV taping um, during the day and then a concert every evening. And then we'd all be parceled off to host families and, and then be sent off in the morning back on the bus with a packed lunch uh, and, and go off and do it all again. I've still got some of those tour itineraries and they're intense. You know, it makes my tour schedule now look really easygoing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, and, you know, when I started writing songs, I think I wrote my first song when I was eight years old, but none of it's been anything I really had much control over. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. I just kind of, I just kind of did things. So you grew up in America, was it in Chicago? Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, yeah. first Chicago, and then when I was 13 or 14, I was just 13 turning 14, we moved to Washington, D.C. I think we moved just after my 14th birthday um, to Washington, D.C. And so I went to secondary school there and then went to university or college, as they call it in the States, just outside Philadelphia and uh, did a B.A. in philosophy. And then um, stayed on after that, working for Vintage Instruments for seven years um, in Philadelphia and then moved to Ireland 
uh, with my first husband and stayed in Ireland 13 years in the process, getting divorced and remarried <laughs> and, right. and having our, our two kids that I have with my, my, my second and, and still husband. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then moved to England uh, 15 years ago. That's good. Well, we'll explore the English uh, links in, in a short while. But let's go back to the musician side then. So from the turning professional, what was the point that made you want to become professional and think that you can make a career out of it? Well, I was really miserable um, working as a magazine editor when my kids were little. They were two and four, respectively. And I was having to drop them off to nursery in the morning and collect them in the evening. And I was just completely miserable. I remember, you know, I'd drop them off at nursery and then be crying on the way to work. I had a long commute and it was my husband who said, well, why don't you quit your job and become a full-time musician? And he said, and, and, well, and I said, because to be a full-time musician, I'd have to tour, you know, and you wouldn't want to be going away on tour. And he said, well, I think we'd probably all see a lot more of you if you were away on tour some of the time and here the rest of the time than, <laughs> than if that... Than like a nine-to-five job. Yeah, that, yeah, 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 then with the nine-to-five job, if you stayed on doing the nine-to-five job and, you know, having the long commute. Yeah, what so, were you doing? What was your job at that time? I was a magazine editor. Um, oh, right, so still in journalism, yeah. Yeah, and I was also still writing um, music and theatre reviews for the Evening Herald and album reviews, um, occasional concert reviews and long... Um, kind of profile pieces on musicians for the for hot press um the profile pieces were great i mean i got to meet alison kraus and ja wobble and all sorts of interesting people and have long conversations with them so that was great i enjoyed doing the freelance work and i, I and i kept on the freelance work for a while after i quit my job my full-time job but um in the end i i, I couldn't do that and have a, you know a music career in my own right Mm-hmm. and uh as well have that you know try and spend time with the kids it was all just too much so something had to go so i so i cut out the freelance work and and just became a full-time musician and uh a mum to my kids the rest of the time that's really interesting because i know some of my listeners will be um musicians who are perhaps part-time they're working and they're trying to work out how to take that leap to become full-time and give up the job and i know in some previous guests actually have still done part-time work whilst they've been a professional musician as such how did you sort of cut off from that previous role and then just dedicate yourself thinking perhaps from a financial point of view a commitment point of view what how did you deal with that I have to also point out that I wouldn't have done it if it weren't for Dick Gahan telling me I could, because <laughs> uh, I don't know if your listeners know of Dick Gahan. He was a wonderful, um, you know, Scottish guitarist and songwriter. And and the thing that sparked the whole thing of of me going back to playing music full time was that I had a phone call from a guitar festival in Strand Hill, County Sligo, um, asking if I would come and give a workshop on the Dad Gad tuning because they knew about my Dad Gad book. And um, I said, well, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't, I haven't played guitar in five years. <laughs> I can't even remember you know, how to do it. And they said, oh, well, we really, really want you to do this. And you would be co-presenting the workshop with Dick Gahan. And he's said he knows of your book and he thinks it's wonderful and he'd love to meet you. 
and really looks forward to co-presenting the workshop with you. And I thought, well, you know, it's one thing to turn down the opportunity to give a workshop, but it's another thing to turn down the opportunity to give a workshop alongside Dick Gohan and, you know, have the honor of working with him. I'll, you know, I'll be kicking myself for the rest of my life if I do that. So I said yes to that and quickly got my guitar out of the case for the first time in years and started trying to relearn how to play it. I actually had to refer to my own guitar book to relearn all the chords. <laughs> remember didn't remember how to do anything but fortunately i had the guitar book to tell me so i went off to strand hill and uh, co-presented this, this workshop with dick gohan and he said to me why aren't you aren't there playing music why aren't you touring you know i don't see your name out there anywhere you know and i said oh i don't think there'd be any market for you know what i do you know certainly not as a solo artist and i'd given up the band years ago and he said, well, there would totally be a market for what you do. You're a great singer and a great guitarist, and people would want to hear you. So, you know, I went back thinking, huh, maybe I could do this. And I guess I would have told Fergal, my husband, about it. And he would, you know, that would have come into his thinking when he said, why didn't you give up the job and just become a musician? So that was in September, that festival. And so I thought to myself, right, I'll start trying to book myself a tour for the month of March and see if I can get say, a couple of weeks of gigs booked in March. And then, it, you know, if it's looking by December as though I can book myself a tour, you know, and, and we'll have enough gigs to, to make some money, then I'll hand in my notice. So that's what I did, and that's what happened. Um, I also got a great opportunity because I was chatting with the people at Gwailin Records and told them that I was thinking of leaving my job and becoming a musician. And and they said, oh, well, listen, you know, that that first album, because I had recorded my first album. I'd, I'd done that when my first husband and I split up and we sold the house that we owned together. I took the money that was my cut of the house um, and spent the money on recording my first album. And that was just something that I recorded thinking, right, this is just something I want to do and want to have done. And I, you know, I had no thought really of, of touring it. But so that had come out back in 1997. So here it was, um, 2006, and I was thinking of quitting my job. And I told Gwail Lynn about this. And they said, well, why don't you let us relaunch, re-release that first album of yours? And because uh, we're trying to get our in-house marketing department going, and it'll be kind of a good guinea pig for us without us having invested any money in recording the album. The album's already there. We'll relaunch it for you and see if we can do a good job with it. And they got me on national television in Ireland. So so that was amazing. So, you know, before I'd even done a gig as a, as a solo artist, I made a solo appearance on this late night TV show um, called The View with John Kelly in Ireland. And, you know, they always had like a musical guest at the end of the show. It was mostly kind of an arts chat show, but they'd always have a musical guest last on at the end of the show um, doing one song in studio. And uh, I got to do that. And the video of that performance is, is still on my website, actually, on my YouTube channel. And so then I had that video to point to, you know, when I was trying to get gigs, which was an amazing thing to be able to point to, <laughs> you know, a really good quality, professionally filmed video of me performing live on national TV. So, Absolutely. So, Great opportunity. So, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I've been incredibly fortunate, you know, in the opportunities that I've that I've had. And, you know, I feel a bit guilty. <laughs> that, you know. 
But well, can I just say on that that you're very much in the um, in the majority of my guests who say, oh, I've been really lucky. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate in the way that something came along like that. But to be fair, when you reflect back on it, you make your own luck. You know, you, you do drive that and it gives you you've convinced somebody to take that chance. Uh, yeah. And that is very, very common. So, you know, fair play to you from uh, on the prey side. That's something that you did and that enthusiasm <laughs> and the spark and the quality and the talent has made that happen. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no, genuinely. And, you know, having listened to quite a lot of your music as well, uh, it, it's it, it very much comes across. So excellent. So that kicked that off. That's really interesting to see how you, you turn that into a professional side. So you sort of gave yourself six months, really, to think, OK, can I get myself ready for this tour in March? How did you feel when that first tour was coming up? Absolutely terrified. Quaking in my <laughs> boots. Yeah, no, it was terrifying. It was really terrifying. Um, and, and I think the first gig of the tour actually was playing support to, uh, before I'd even done a full solo gig, I played support to uh, Pierre Bensuzan. But he was really encouraging too, you know, and so that, that was another thing that helped me. And he's a, another advocate of Dadgad. And I should explain, yeah. uh, you know, obviously me being a guitarist as well, for the non-guitarists listening that uh, a guitar has recognised standard tuning, uh, E-A-D-G-B-E. Dadgad is a variation of that that is very, used a lot in Irish music. It's used a lot in folk. Um, but uh, probably leave it at that in terms as a, an explanation for the time being. But play around with it. Get Sarah's book. It's on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of funny the book i mean i still sell the book at my gigs and it's still selling where it's still you know published by hal leonard which is amazing it's still in print it came out in 1994 that book and it's still in print which is quite an achievement for any book um and it's still selling worldwide um with, I the, get, with the cd I, included as well yeah 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 i mean the cd that's included is just kind of a teaching cd it's just the, the tunes that are written out in the book played very slowly you know by me yeah, <laughs> um, yeah very helpful though i have to say it's really really helpful to understand oh. the chord structures and and the flow let's talk about your songwriting then because obviously you went from playing traditional tunes to writing your own and it's gradually grown and grown and that it's you know you, you play virtually your all of your own material how do you approach songwriting and what inspired you to write your own songs and come up with the material in the first place? I started writing songs, as I say, when I was really little. And I, you know, I don't know what, I, I suppose I was singing lots of songs. So I thought I ought to write some. And I wrote some truly dreadful songs, you know, as a child and as a teenager. And, and I, you know, and I would get up and perform my songs in, in chapel in, in, in school. Um, we, had, we had chapel every Tuesday morning and there would usually be some sort of a, a thing, you know, somebody would get up and read a poem or whatever. And I, I, I got up and would do one of my songs at chapel service kind of thing. And, you know, and, and, and then when I started playing with bands, we would generally do kind of one or two of my songs in the band's set. But I didn't think of myself as a songwriter, really, as such. I, I thought of myself as a, as a singer and, and a guitarist who happened to write an occasional song. It wasn't, songwriting wasn't ever, it was kind of, I heard a poet do an interview once where she said that she felt that a poem came along to her as like kind of like an ongoing train and she just would have to kind of stop what she was doing and deal with the impact of the poem and, and, and write it out. And that's kind of how I felt about songs back in those days. 
you know, you'd you'd feel a song coming on and you would just have to sit down and write it. But I never really worked much on songwriting as such until I met Zoe um, when I moved to Ireland. Um, who your listeners might remember, she had a great big hit single called Sunshine on a Rainy Day. Yes, indeed. Um, great and, song. Uh, she's written lots of great songs since then. She's an absolutely brilliant songwriter. I've, she just seems to, you know, kind of breathe out songs. Um and I've, I've never met anything like it. Uh, but she and I met because our kids were going to the same tiny little school. And she came over to my house one day and and said, oh, I'm working. Can I play you a song I'm working on? And I, she played me this song. And I said, oh, that's that's a really lovely melody. But I don't understand the words that you're singing. Could you write them up for me? And she said, oh, I'm just singing gibberish. I don't have any words for it. And I said, well, would you like some words? And she said, could you? Yeah, please write some words. And she liked the words that I'd written. And she said, oh, do you want to write some more songs together? And I said, sure. And we started writing songs together. And she said, do you want to make an album? And I said, yeah, but how, where? And she said, oh, I know this absolutely brilliant sound engineer. His name is Martin Stansbury. And I've worked on him on a bunch of different projects. So that's how I met Martin, who's now, who's been my manager and touring sound engineer ever since um, and, and produced my current album, The St. Burian Sessions. Mm -hmm. And uh, so back way back in 2008, um, he produced um, and, and recorded the, the Mama album that I made with Zoe. And I guess it was working with Zoe that made me finally start to believe in myself a little bit as a songwriter and think that maybe songwriting was something I should actually focus on and work on. So my first album, that, that one I recorded back in 1997, had one original song on it uh, that I'd written, and the rest was all traditional. And then the second album had two of my original songs, <laughs> both songs that I'd written about my mother, because uh, my mother had just died when, when I made that album, and um, it's kind of dedicated to her. So it's all songs that I'd learned from her, and or that, you know, that were songs she was fond of. And... And then these two songs that I'd written about her. And um, that album came out in 2008. And meanwhile, I was working on the Mom album with Zoe and then started actually writing songs for my, for my third album, which came out in 2012. And that was about half and half original songs that I'd written. And uh, a lot of Elizabethan material, which I'd started taking an interest in. So I had right. a medieval song. So I had a medieval song, an old Occitan, and I had a John Dowland song and a Th Thomas Ravenscroft. When I made my fourth and fifth albums, those focused mostly on my own original uh, material, as did the sixth album, St. Burian Sessions. So the next thing I want to do is try and find the funds to renovate my garage into a studio so I can have a place to record material and, and start recording the, the new songs that I'm working on. The songs that you write then, how do you approach them? Is it you just sit down when inspiration strikes, you'll write? Do you put some time aside to write? How do you approach it? The way it's gone with the past three albums is that I had loads and loads of song ideas, half-finished songs in the form of lyrics um, written down in my phone notepad app, and um, also voice memos that I would record when I get ideas for a guitar riff or a melody. I would sit down and just make a quick recording on, on the voice memo. I've got loads of those <laughs> as well that I've, I've been accumulating. 
ever since we finished the Degeni Deeper album back in 2017. So it's it's like I've got I've got six years worth of fragmentary lyrics and voice memos. And with with the Walking Into White album, I I, I had a similar a similar accumulation of ideas and nothing finished. That album was recorded over in the USA, so I not only booked studio time, but but booked flights. <laughs> so I really had to have finished songs. That's a that, talk about having a deadline and something to yeah. work to. Wow! <laughs> and so then, with that deadline hanging over with me, I sat down with all my song ideas and set about fleshing them out into finished songs for you know in time to record them for the album. And that process worked incredibly well. It worked so well that. For the first couple of years after that album came out, or not the first couple of years, the first year, I guess, after the album came out, what I was doing was was performing the album live for the first half of every gig I did because I felt that the songs worked so well as kind of a suite of songs because they were all written really quickly in one three-week period. I had three weeks to flesh out all my stuff into finished songs. And, and so all the songs were written in the same really tight, time frame all with reference to each other and I was each song that I finished I was thinking of how it would sit alongside all of the other songs that I'd finished up to that point and I felt like that was for me that was a really good way of working and so when I started getting songs song ideas for the Dig Any Deeper album I almost made a conscious effort not to finish songs and not to sit down and flesh them out uh, you know and to leave them in fragmentary form and and as well, I felt like it was beneficial to have them kind of all percolating around in my subconscious, you know, and being able to come back and dip into them from time to time. Like just towards the end of this current tour in the U- when I was in the USA, one of the songs that I'd started writing two or three years ago came back to me and I thought, you know what, actually, I've, you know, I've got the wrong emphasis on that song. I need to approach it this other way instead. And I kept some of what I'd already written for it and added, a bu- you know, added some other words and, and thought a bit about the melodic structure and how I might change it and made notes about that. So it's all accumulating. But yeah, so then the Dig Any Deeper album, um, I recorded that with, with Michael Chapman uh, producing and playing on it. And I went up to Michael Chapman's house actually to sit down and work with him and run through some of the songs that I was in the process of fleshing out. And uh, that really, that was really helpful too. I mean, he, he gave me a lot of really useful guidance, just things as simple as saying, I think you need to repeat that line, you know, <laughs> or mm. whatever. So that was really helpful too. And um, as, as soon as I know when I'm going to have a place and a time to record the next album. I've got a load of songs that I think I can already see how they're going to work together and what the kind of themes are going to start to be. There are kind of running themes kind of forming as I'm in the process of writing. But as I say, I, I'm reluctant to do, get too deep into the writing process until I know that I have a place and a time to do the recording. Like a lot of people, you've got uh, the, the smartphone has been such a great uh, invention to be able to capture ideas, but it's also sometimes your worst enemy in that you've got so many ideas and to go back to. But it, it, it's a great way of capturing uh, those thoughts. Absolutely. Can I talk about touring then? Um, because uh, something that stands out for me is, you know, you've just come back from the USA doing a tour there. You're about to embark on UK. Uh, and certainly in terms of touring abroad, how do you tackle that with all the variety of different legalities that you've got to deal with? 
Well, I'm very lucky. <laughs> I can't keep saying I'm lucky. I'm lucky in that I have dual Irish and American citizenship. I have an Irish passport, which conveniently still allows me to, you know, I could I could still live anywhere in Europe, but I'm also still allowed under the common travel agreement to continue living in the UK without having to get a leave to remain or anything like that. And my American passport still allows me to work in the USA. So I'm lucky in that I've got the whole of Europe and the UK and the USA that I can work in without having to worry about a work visa. That's quite handy. Now, um, there are still issues to do with customs and bringing material back and forth. I have to really limit the amount of merch um, that I bring over when I'm touring in Ireland and Europe to the amount that you can, you know, there's a limit that you can bring without having to go through a whole big import process. And uh, then in the USA, I get around that by manufacturing CDs over there. So that makes life easier. With Europe, of course, now and Ireland, um, because of Brexit, I now have to have a carne, which has made touring way more expensive and difficult than it used to be because I've got to pay for a carne to to list everything that I'm bringing over tech-wise. That's down to the last the last degree about cables and pl- yeah, plugs oh, yeah, and yeah. things and every strings page, that you had. Yeah, everything, all the wow. string, you know, strings, et cetera. It's, it's a real pain. And then, you know, if st- stuff happens, like I, I had a carne to last a year that was to get me through three tours and... Midway through one of the tours, we had to replace an amp, and you have to list the serial numbers on these things. So suddenly I was traveling with an amp with a different serial number than the one that was on the carne, and all I, all I could do was just hope that nobody was going to take a, a, a close enough look to actually investigate and make sure the serial numbers matched. I mean, it was an identical piece of equipment. It was just a replacement like for like, but it's it's that kind of thing that the whole carne thing just really messes up. Prior to Brexit, I didn't have to do any of that. We could just load all the gear in the van and drive to Europe and do a tour. And it was just like touring in the UK. Now it isn't anymore. There's all these extra hoops to be jumped through. And um, as far as I can make out, all it's doing is just creating a load of extra work and expense, not just for me, but for the, you know, I have to, um, each tour involves visits to four different customs offices because you've got to go to the customs office on the UK side before you leave and get the carnet stamped. Then the customs office on the Europe side when you arrive and get the carnet stamped and then coming back, repeat that in reverse, get it stamped and signed again, get it stamped and signed again, send it back to the Chamber of Commerce, the London Chamber of Commerce, which issued the carnet. Then um, I had a bit of a scare recently where, you know, uh, London Chamber of Commerce forwarded me a letter from the Ireland Customs Office saying that they were missing one of the stamps from the carnet and I was going to have to pay a £6,000 fine, you know, or euro or oh, whatever. Gosh. And uh, fortunately, I had kept a copy of the carnet. I'd, I'd scanned it all in before I uh, had um, sent it back to the London Chamber of Commerce. So I, I had to forward the scans of the relevant pages that had been stamped to the Ireland Customs Office and they accepted that. But, you know, it's just, oh, it's... It's, it's extra a, hassle that is just... Massive, is not, uh, not, not huge, needed. yeah, huge bureaucracy that you have to go through and cost. I mean, it, it, 
I can't remember what the carne cost, um, four or five hundred pounds or something. So that's, you know, basically you lose a gig to the cost of the carne. Yeah. And it's hard for the promoters as well, because they've got that extra, you know, you're going to have to try and build that cost in to your fee. And then, of course, that makes it harder for the promoter probably having to put ticket prices up as well at the other end. No, ticket prices have had to go up, you know, and then audiences are way down, um, partly because people are still worried about COVID, understandably, and Partly because they're worried about the cost of living, understandably. I can't blame audiences that if they're going to cut back on anything, that it's going to concerts, you know, rather than cutting back on food or heating, you know. That's right. But, but there's so uh, much benefit to mental health as well in terms of getting out, you know, taking in live music, that experience. It's such a hard thing to balance. I think what we have to say is anybody from Parliament that's listening to this or House of Lords, please, please take this forward because it's so important for musicians and for everyone, you know, for audiences alike. It has a massive impact on it. Arts funding has dropped off like crazy too, which so many venues depend on, you know, and and venues, I, I keep getting notices that venues are having to close down because they can't survive in the current climate I and mean, it's it's becoming a sad world <laughs> it is i did a tour in germany my tour in germany last um march was really encouraging because for whatever reason people there have started coming back in in to gigs in some way something resembling pre-covid numbers which they haven't done in the states that was really fantastic to see that you know, I, it's the only that German tour was, you know, and I had a few Netherlands and, and one Denmark gig. So say Netherlands, not quite as good as Germany. Denmark is good. The, the Denmark gig was really well attended. But yeah, all those all those gigs were really well attended. And it actually almost felt like pre-COVID times um, mm. with, you know, packed houses and people really, you know, supporting music. And that was that was wonderful to see. And it really gave me hope. Just hope that that the USA and UK can can turn around in the same way. Thanks ever so much for spending all that time with us, Sarah, and for all that um, honesty and you know the, your experience about the touring and songwriting has been really really insightful. I've got one final question that I ask all my guests, and that is knowing what you know now. Perhaps going back to that teenage self when you were starting into the the music world, what one piece of advice would you give that younger self of you? Just believe in yourself a bit more. You know, I don't regret anything that happened because it's all led me to, you know, the place where I am now. And who knows, maybe if I'd believed in myself more at a younger age, maybe I wasn't ready for it then. And maybe, you know, maybe if I'd gone and become a full-time musician right when I'd made that first album back in 1997, maybe it would all have been a disaster, you know? <laughs> um, certainly it's helped to have started at a slightly more kind of mature age you know and to not to be trying to do the rock and roll lifestyle (laughs) and i'm not very rock and roll at all on a night off i'm in bed at eight o'clock just trying to catch up on sleep but i do feel that it took me a long long time to kind of gain enough self-confidence to actually do the things that people were encouraging me to do And the piece of advice that I always give other musicians when they're saying, oh, what should I do? Should I? And I always say to them, please yourself, don't write what you think the market wants to hear. Don't try and perform the way you think the market wants you to perform. Don't try to be anything that you're not. Just, you know, be true to yourself, be yourself. And, 
you know, write the songs that you feel compelled to write and perform them the way you feel compelled to perform them. And if there's a market for it, there will be, and it'll find you, you know, you don't, you don't have to try and mold yourself into some shape that you think is required. Just be yourself. Sarah McQuaid, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Ian. Lovely chatting to you. Sarah's career journey was quite something, and especially that it took not only the well-respected professional musician Dick Gohan, but also, and perhaps more importantly, the support of her family to convince her to give the professional route a go. I was also interested to hear about her approach to songwriting. Deadlines have been a common theme and a common driver with all of the songwriters that I've interviewed during Half Hour Mentor. And giving yourself three weeks to write an album's worth of songs by booking not only a studio but flights to the USA is a real motivator. Having said that, her latter approach of letting half-completed songs percolate, as she called it, was one I hadn't heard of before, and I can definitely see the benefit of this, especially when a common theme's involved. Last but by no means least, her experience on touring abroad was invaluable. She's written a case study for the Musicians' Union on her experiences too, and a link to this can be found in the show notes. It's ideal for any musician considering touring abroad. My thanks to Sarah for giving up some time between tours, and also for her great advice. Don't forget you can have a listen to her music in the Spotify playlist I've curated, that's linked in the show notes. I've also included that great song by Zoe that she referred to, Sunshine on a Rainy Day. You can also find links to her work via her website, sarahmcquade.com, and her social media links are also in the show notes, along with the Amazon link to her Dadgad Tuning Tutorial book for all you curious guitarists out there. I've got a copy and I can highly recommend it. She has more tours planned for 2024 in USA, Europe and UK, so be sure to check out her website to see where you can see her play live. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow the series wherever you get your pods and do review the back catalogue if you're new to the series. You can leave feedback about the episode through social media by searching for Half Hour Mentor or via the email link in the show notes. I'd always love to hear from you and find out what you think about them, so please do get in touch. Thanks for listening, and until next time, bye for now. Mm-hmm.